So I think most of us would agree that we want to see, we would like to see the generations that follow us make better choices and decisions than we did. You know, we think about our lives and we, we can remember all the stupid mistakes that we made. You know, we, and we do this, we, we want this for, our, for future generations because we want life to be better for them. Because again, we want our, gen, the, our future generations, the generation that follow us to, to not, go back to, not go backwards, but go forward and to learn from the Lord, to grow in their walks and, and to love the Lord and to be obedient to the Lord. The generation that followed Joshua just fell away. They became disobedient, became wicked, they did evil. Yes, it was a new generation, but it was a problematic generation. And you'll see, again, if you're a parent or grandparent and you're around children, you know you're going to be able to relate to hear with some of the stuff going on. So, again, we're going to, if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be in Judges chapter 2 this morning. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I promised to your fathers. I, I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are, you are not to make a covenant with the people who are living in this land. And you are to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these to the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named the place Bochim and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Verses 1 through 5 serve as a sort of hook between the last part of chapter 1 and the verses that follow, chapter, uh, verses 6 through thir- 23. Here, God is directly informing Israel of his disappointment and the consequences for failing to obey his command to possess the land he had given them and to completely destroy their enemies. This first confrontation between Yahweh and the people of Israel is divided into three parts. The introduction of the speaker, the divine speech, and Israel's response to the speech. Now, when it comes to the speaker, we're automatically told that um, it's an angel of the Lord. Scholars are divided as far as who this angel of the Lord is. Some say it was a heavenly being who was delivering a message directly from God. Now, prior to this, there were various times in the Old Testament where God used angels to deliver messages and help to certain people. For example, Hagar in in Genesis, when Abram had to kick out Hagar 
from his family, an angel came and ministered to her and spoke to her. And then we also have the story of Lot. If you remember that story, the angel of the Lord came and to rescue his family and, and uh, bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But others, other scholars, other teachers, have said that this angel may have been Jesus Christ himself appearing to the people of Israel prior to his birth, prior to his incarnate birth. Now, there's an official name, there's a theological name to that. Um, it's called the Christophany. And again, all that means is Jesus Christ appearing before his actual birth, a Christophany. Now, their argument for this is that the messenger spoke in the first person when reminding them of what he had done for them and what, he will, and what he'll do next. Now, regardless of which side of the debate anyone, you know, anyone is in, everyone agrees that it was God here who was speaking. These were God's words, and so they have to be taken seriously. And so now... From verses 1 to 3, we see the speech. And these were the words spoken by the messenger, by the angel. And God begins by reminding them of how he delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the land he promised their fathers. His words, I will never break my covenant with you, was also a, remind, was a reminder that even though Israel wouldn't be able to keep their end of the covenant, God promised that he would. He then reminds them of his past commandments, citing two in particular. They were not to make alliances and agreements with the people living in the land that they were supposed to take. And this is what we see them doing in chapter 1. They were making these agreements, they were making these deals, and they were living among the people. So they were breaking that command. We, always see, we see in chapter 1 how they broke that command. And the second one, the second uh, command that we see that he talks about in particular was that they were to tear down the places where they worshipped other gods. This reveals that not only did the Israelites make compromises to allow their enemies live among them, but they allowed them to freely conduct detestable worship practices as well. Now, after stating his past actions and past warnings, in the second half of verse 2, God gives them a sharp rebuke. You have not obeyed me. They had defied the will of God, not because they couldn't, but rather they wouldn't, which shows us more than anything that this was a spiritual problem, more than a physical problem. This was a spiritual problem that was going on inside them as a nation, as a people. This then leads them to rhetorically ask, what is this you have done? God then explains how he intends to respond to Israel's failure to deal with the Canaanites in chapter 1. First, he tells them that he will no longer act on their behalf to drive out the Canaanites out of the land. You see, initially, God was 
the one doing all the work, all the real work, all the heavy lifting. So that all the Israelites had to do was to go in there, take the land, and destroy the enemy. But now, because of their disobedience and their lack of trust in him, he was going to allow the work of possessing the land to go unfinished. And, and second, he will be allowing the Canaanites and their gods to have their way with his people. God was informing them that, informing them of the warning he gave them in Numbers chapter 33, verse 55. He told them that this would now happen. And there in Numbers, he says, If you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those you allow to remain will become thorns in your eyes and in your sides. They will harass you in the land where you will live. This is the word he gave them. This is what he told them way back in Numbers. Even before this situation happened, before this generation rose up and started to be disobedient. He said, if you allow this to happen, then this is going to happen. He gave them a warning. Well, in verses 4 and 5, we see how Israel reacted to what God had told them. The people wept loudly and memorialized their response by naming the place Bochum, which means place of weeping, and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. From these actions, it appears their repentance was genuine, and they recognized how badly they blew it with God. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it seems that it had no effect on God because there was no response from Him. This will be the last time in the book of Judges that we see Israel responding in this way. This will be the last time that you see them weeping loudly. This was the last time there was just genuine, sincere brokenness. Now before I move on to reading the next part of our passage, I want to take a moment to reflect on these verses and see what we can learn from them. As believers, there will be many times in our lives when we may find ourselves at a crossroad like the Israelites were. And maybe you've been through some already, but in our Christian walks, there are going to come times where we see one road to the right and one road to the left. On one side, there is the smooth and easy paved road of compromise and tolerance that leads into the mindset and spiritual culture of the world. It's that road that says, yeah, you know, this road is a lot easier, but it's worldly and it's going to, I'm going to start thinking, it's going to lead you into thinking like the world, to believing the things of the world. And yes, it seems easy. It's going to seem like a, you can just actually slide right through that world, but at the end of that road is nothing, it's destruction, it's not good for you. Now on the other side of the road is the rough and difficult road of faithfulness and obedience that leads you into the kingdom of God. 
it's not going to be easy. This Christian walk, it's, it's going to be a lot of bumps. There's going to be a lot of times when you're just going to be hurt. And, and but what God wants to see is even in the midst of that, are you going to, be, are you going to remain faithful? Are you going to remain obedient? We're going to struggle. Going through that road, it's going to be there's going to be struggles. But guess what? There is a goal at the end of it all. There is the kingdom of God. That's our main goal is to be face-to-face -face with our Savior. To embrace Him and for Him to tell, you, for him to tell us, Good job, my good and faithful servant. These rough patches, these scars, bruises are meant for good. They're meant to build us up, to make us more into the image of Christ. And believe me, when you get up to heaven, he's going to point them all out and say, yeah, I know I was there. I was there when, our, when your heart was broken. I was there when that person did this to you or did... or." These people did, you know, that to you, whatever it may be. But he's going to be there, and he'll say, I, I was there with you. I know. Look at my, he'll be like, look at my scars. And I did this for you. Now, whichever road you decide to take, it will determine God's response to you. Now, for those who have chosen to take the easy road, the road that leads to the world, God's response to you would sound something like this. And I'm taking, I'm taking it out of the scripture here. It's not exact. Again, I'm, I kind of reworded it. But this, again, would be God's response if you decided to take that road. He would say, I brought you out of sin and death and led you into a place of forgiveness and eternal life. I told you I would never break my end of our agreement. For your part, you weren't to make other agreements with the sinners of the world. Instead, you were to destroy everything they loved more than me. But you disobeyed my orders. Why did you do this? So, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to take them out of your life for you. They're going to constantly bother and annoy you and distract you. And their gods will be a constant temptation to you. Wow. I wouldn't want that kind of rebuke in my life. We look at it again that passage of scripture and put it in that context and put it personally apply it personally man that, that's a pretty sharp rebuke now to those who have chosen the rough and difficult road listen to what it says in James chapter 1 verse 12 a man who endures trials is blessed a man or a woman is blessed because when he passes the test he will receive the crown that God has promised to those who love Him. Understand this. God takes no delight and pleasure in disciplining His children. Again, those of us who are parents, we know that. We don't like spanking our kids. We don't like 
punishing them. However, in order to stay true to himself, in order for God to be true to his word, he must fulfill his warnings. The purpose of God doing that is ultimately for our benefit. Ultimately, it's for your benefit. You see, he's showing you that there is no one or nothing else that's going to be more dependable than him. God wants you to come to a point where you can honestly tell him, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me up in the glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. But this can't happen until you let go of your pride and your stubbornness and humbly come before Jesus at the foot of the cross and just say, here, Lord, I know that I've been prideful. I know that I've been disobedient. And I know that I've been, I've been acting, I've been sinning, and I've been acting against you. My heart is broken. My life is broken. And so I come before you and just hand this to you. And I'm letting go of my pride. I'm letting go of my stubbornness. Fix me, heal me, change me. And he will. He will. He will heal you. Now, probably should get reading into the next portion of, 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 past, of our passage this morning. Um, let's pick up in verse 6. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. Joshua sent the people away, and the Israelites went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation arose who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the, sight, in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord, for they had abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies who were around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. In these verses, we're given a quick summary of the spiritual condition of the people of that next generation. We also see Joshua's death and burial. And we 
again, we see God responding to that generation's wickedness, to their behavior. Now, scholars believe that in verse 6, the author was going back in time before Joshua's death in order to highlight that generation's faithfulness in contrast to the faithfulness of the next generation. Now, this would make sense since it seems that there is no sense of struggle to take the land. The conquest had been complete, had been accomplished by Joshua and by his generation, and now they simply, and now they simply had to go and take their inheritance and possess the land. It's clear in verse 7 that the generation that was around when Joshua and the elders were alive had been faithful because they had seen all the Lord's great works and all that he had done for Israel. Now, in addition, in verse 7, the verb worshipped speaks not only of submissive obedience to Yahweh, to the Lord, but also speaks of, of pure worship of Yahweh. So it speaks of obedience to Yahweh and it speaks of pure worship of Yahweh. Verse 8 then shifts by telling us of Joshua's death and where he was buried, which is nearly identical. The same account, we read about the same account at the very end of the book of Joshua. There's a little bit more details about his death. It's in the last chapter of Joshua if you want to look it up later on, but it's nearly identical. Now the fact, what I find is amazing, the fact that he lived to 110 shows us how much the Lord had just blessed him. How much God had used him. And it was a sign again that God was with him. I absolutely believe that no matter what age the Lord takes us, we have to make the most of the time and we're blessed. I think one second in this life is a blessing of the Lord. So whether it's a second or whether it's 110 years old, use this time wisely. Let it be a blessing. Let every single life, every single year that you have, every single moment, be a blessing to others. Be a blessing to the Lord. You know, I, again, it's amazing that he lived to 110 years old. I'm not saying that I want to live to 110. I mean, you know, I realize now that you know, I think I used to think, man, if I can live to 110, that would be great. But I'm starting to realize that it hurts. You know, your body starts hurting. You know, and I can only imagine 110, like all the aches and pains. And no, I just I'd rather be with the Lord when I'm just like strong and healthy. You know, but again, I'm gonna just I'm gonna be used as long as He wants to use me. Well, we see at the end of verse 10, a new generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Tragically, the memory of how God rescued and fought for them died with Joshua and the survivors of his generation were gone. The new generation of Israelites stopped serving Yahweh and had no idea of all the amazing things God had done for their fathers. This is why it's so important that we constantly share 
and remind the children and the youths we have influence over, of our own testimony, of our own story of how God rescued us, of the works that God has done in our lives. Because if we don't tell them, how else are they going to know about the greatness of God? How else are they going to hear? But they may hear it from friends. They may hear it from others. But they need to know from you. They need to know from in your life, how did God show up? How did God rescue you? How did, you know, what did God do in your life? They need to know these things. They need to hear it from you. How will they know what God is capable of if no one tells them? Many times in their eyes, and this is something that you got to understand because they may get, when they get older, they may come a point where you have no more influence on them. But while you do, in their eyes, there's no greater rags to riches story than your own. You see, if they can see what God did for you, then it will give them hope that God will do the same for them when everything seems hopeless. David wrote in Psalm 145, verses 4 through 7, One generation will declare your works to the next and will will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your glorious splendor and your wonderful works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring works, and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. That's why it's so important that we tell them. I mean, we, I think we have to use wisdom and and we can't tell, I know there are t- things we can't say yet that they won't be able to understand. There's a lot of, it's a big portion of my testimony that my kids don't, I haven't told my kids yet because again, it's not, I believe there's a right time and the right place to share these things. But again, what they do know, I try to remind them like, this is where I was and this is what God did. And they may not understand it at first. They may not get it. But maybe later on, if they're ever in a similar situation, they can be like, well, if God did that for my dad, he can do it for me. And I remind them that it only, change only happened when I fell on my knees. When I fell on my knees, on my face, and asked for forgiveness. And I humbled myself, broken. And I tell them so that, again, they may do the same thing whenever they find themselves in that situation. Again, we don't want our kids to suffer. We don't want our kids to go through pain and tragedy, but when they do, they may think of the Lord and think of, again, how he rescued us. And he will do the same for them. Well, it looks like the, the leaders and the priests of that new generation failed to instruct the people about their history, traditions, their festivals, their observances, and customs. And as a result, the Israelites 
lost sight of God's grace and the sense of any obligation to him. What follows in verses 11 and 12 are the effects that take place when God is forgotten about. The nation of Israel became idolatrous and unfaithful. Rather than worshiping God, they abandoned him and worshiped the Canaanite gods of Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now, Baal was the Canaanite god of the weather and of nature, and essentially worshipped for agricultural success. You see, he was the god of personal wealth. He was the god of a business. I do well here, man, I have it made. I'm going to have money, and I'm going to have power, and everyone's going to be looking to me. So he's associated again with, Baal was associated with the god of of, of personal wealth. Now, Ashtoreth, and I know it's plural because there was many of them, but Ashtoreth was the Canaanite goddess of fertility, love, and war, and was honored by the practice of ritual sex with, with, priestesses, with priestess uh, prostitution, or ritual sex with a priestess prostitute. In their theology, Baal engaged in sexual relations with the Ashtoreths, which they believed would bring fertility to the earth. Now, those who worshipped them, those who worshipped those gods, would often engage in perverse sexual practices and rituals that were pro prohibited in the Mosaic Law. Now, Pastor Ga David Guzik wrote this, or he said this, it's strange, it is strange that anyone would, would want to trade a personal, real, living God for a false God that is in the figment of man's, man's imagination. Yet there is something within a man that is afraid of the exact God we need. We would rather serve a God of our own creation than the real, living God whom we can't control. The God's the gods that we create are the gods wanted by our own sinful desires. Now it's quite possible that Israel may not have seen their actions as forsaking God. If so, if this was the case, they probably just thought that they were adding a few gods alongside with the God of their fathers. They probably thought, oh, it's no big deal. I just, you know, I'll take... Baal and Asherites and just put their image in the house. And I, I still believe in God Almighty. I still believe the God of my fathers. You know, those gods aren't really all that important to me. But what do we know about the Bible? Well, what, is, what does God tell us? Especially, it's, it's one of his main commands. We're told that God is a jealous God who demands exclusive worship. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want your worship to be shared with anybody else, with anything else. He wants all of your worship. Again, Pastor David Guzik said this, one biblical illustration of our relationship with God is to describe it as a marriage relationship between a husband and wife. It would be wrong for a wife or, or a husband to add many lovers to her marriage, claiming that she simply could love them all. A husband or wife 
as right has has a righteous claim on the exclusive affection of their spouse. God has a righteous claim on our exclusive worship. It should come to no surprise then of God's response in verses 14 and 15 to their switch of allegiance and the wickedness they became a part of. He expressed their divine, his divine fury by allowing two things to happen. He handed them over to the marauders who raided them and he sold them to the enemies around them. So, because of these two things, Israel could no longer resist their enemies. But the shocking reality for Israel was that God was their real adversary. Every time they went to go fight the Canaanites, it was God who they were resisting and who was determined to make life miserable for them. Now God's main purpose, and again you may be thinking, that's not fair, that ain't right. But God's main purpose for doing this, so that when they did suffer, that Israel would come back to the Lord. You see, God's goal wasn't punishment, the punishment itself, but repentance. Therefore, we should see this as a manifestation of God's love for Israel instead of hate, instead of his hate. The worst judgment God can bring upon a person is to leave them alone, to stop trying to bring them to repentance. Now, in light of the tragic events that we've seen, happening in this world, whether it's the hurricanes or whether what happened in, in, in Vegas, in light of what we've seen, what has occurred, we shouldn't ignore the possibility that God may be trying to get us to that place of repentance. The question we must ask ourselves as a nation, as a church, and individual is this, will we humble ourselves and repent of our sins or will we go on and continue to resist God? Now sadly, in looking at the condition of our nation, I'm afraid that, is, that America is still far from the condition of national groaning because of the oppression and affliction. I don't think they're in this place of, that we see Israel time and time again in this book where they're groaning and they're crying out to the Lord for help. We may be close. I see it at times, but I think we're still far from that. As a nation, I believe we're still too prideful to fall on our knees and ask God for forgiveness and help. Now, as a church, and I'm speaking of the church in general, not this you know, specific church. But I believe we must first recognize those areas of compromise and cultural tolerance and ask God for forgiveness in those areas. How many churches have allowed the world to come into the, into the pulpit or into, that, into the church? How many churches have said, you know what, we're going to look like the world. We're going to act like the world. We're going to 
We're going to accept certain behaviors that, are de- that we know are detestable in the sight of the Lord, that He doesn't accept. But because of cultural tolerance, because they don't want to f- offend people, they're like, no, we'll just, it's okay. You know, I'll give you a hug. You've got to understand that Bible, the word of God is going to offend people. It's going to if it if it doesn't hurt you, if it doesn't change you, if it doesn't if you don't feel like you're being stabbed in the heart, then the word the word of God is not working. It's not doing its job. You should be reading this and say, "Oh my goodness, man, I've I've messed up. I've screwed. I, I, man, this is me, and I need to repent." It shouldn't be one of those. And if you have the the, the heart of, man, that's, that sucks, man. Forget that. You know? Man, there's something wrong with you. There's something going on in your own heart that you need to, to deal with. I know there are times, again, I just, I, I feel broken when I read something. And I'm like, man, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I see now that you're speaking to me, that this applies to me, and I need to change this. And this should be constant in our lives as we go as we read as we study as we as you listen to the teachings as you listen, whether it's me or somebody else but he should be speaking to you that's how you know your eyes i mean your ears are open your heart is is open because it, the word of god pierces and it should it should change you if god's church is unwilling or unable to humble herself. Why, would she, why should we expect those on the outside of the church to do it? Now, individually, we must stop pointing out the pride and stubbornness in others and start looking in the mirror to see where we're guilt, see how and where we're guilty of it. In our, within ourselves to see if we're guilty of it ourselves. In other words, if you think of the person that, bother you, that bother you, bothers you the most, that person that you just can't stand the most right now, if you're thinking of that person, if you think that person needs, needs Jesus Christ more than you, that they need more, Jesus Christ more than you do, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong with that picture because we all need Jesus Christ more than the next person. We're no better. Yeah, you know, we we may be walking a little bit more obediently, but you ought to be thinking, I need Christ. I need Jesus more than the next person. I want, you know, almost, almost be like, Selfish with the Lord. Stop focusing on others. Focus on on what the Lord needs to do in your life and what He needs to change in you, within you. And then watch Him change the way you look at the world. Watch them. Watch as the Lord changes the way you see that person. Man, I want to learn 
I want to dedicate my life and I want to learn to just depend on him more and more and more and more. I want to let go of myself. I want to let go of my my own selfishness, my pride, and, and me trying to think that I can figure this out. I need Jesus more than the next person. I need him. And I want him to just take control of my entire life. When Paul said, godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted, leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. This is what he meant. Godly sorrow is contrition, motivated by love for God, and such sorrow produces repentance. Worldly grief, on the other hand, is nothing more than self-pity and produces death because it is self-centered rather than God-centered. If we truly desire for change, we need to come to a place of godly repentance as a nation, as a church, and as individuals. Now let's finish reading up this, this chapter. The Lord raised up judges to save them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing, bowing down to them. They quickly turned away from their, from their fathers, from the, turned away from the way of their fathers who walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved with pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers going after other gods to worship and bow down to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he declared, because this nation has violated my command that I made with their fathers and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive them out before any nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel, to see whether they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it as their fathers had. The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. In these verses we just read, we see two things happening. Israel's continuous cycle of bondage and, delivering and deliverance during the days of Judges. And two, God's punishment for their disobedience by giving them over to their enemies. To what? To test them. Now, there are two parts that divide verses 16 and 19. And they both begin with a notice that God raised up judges for the Israelites and concludes with an observable response. Now, here are those two parts. In verses 16 and 17, judges are introduced as, the, as deliverers who stood in opposition to their oppressors and taught Israel the principles of godliness. Israel, however, failed to follow the Lord 
by doing the following. They, they did not listen to their judges. They prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. And they did not do as their fathers did. Now, verses 18 and 19 explain to us God's gracious actions towards his people and their ungrateful and treacherous response. Here the author begins by telling us how the Lord was moved with pity every time the people cried out because of the oppression of their enemies. So what did he do? He used judges to deliver them. But unfortunately, the, su the success given to these, to, to these deliverers was short-lived. It only lasted a few sh uh, just a short time. As soon as these rulers died, the people would act even more corruptly than the previous generation by pursuing other gods to serve and honor them. Then to express the downward uh, continuing spiral of Israelite, the Israelite faith and conduct, the author tells us that did, they did not repent of their sins or their stubborn ways. They didn't repent. They, it's like they knew what they were doing and they did not repent. They were like, no, I'm fine the way I am. They were just stubborn about it and they did not want to change. In verses 20 and 22, the author gives us a verbatim quotation of a divine speech like the one at the beginning of this chapter. However, this one in particular is divided into three parts. The first part is God's accusation against Israel for violating the covenant he made with their fathers and their disobedience to him. The second part is God's reaction towards their rebelliousness by stepping aside and allowing the people to have what they wanted. He stepped aside and was like, I'm going to give you what you want. And what is that? A Canaanite lifestyle. The last part of, is God's motive or his purpose for leaving their enemies. And it was to test their dedication, to test, test the dedication and devotion of his chosen people. This chapter concludes by telling us that God's determination to test Israel was fulfilled by permitting these nations to remain in the land. The very same rest he had achieved for Israel under the leadership of Joshua, he now granted to the Canaanites and the other nations by not driving them out quickly. This final statement is a reminder that God is in complete control of Israel's destiny and demonstrate Israel's need for a saving relationship with the Lord. And what do we see here in these verses? The cycle of disobedience, discipline, despair, and deliverance is seen today whenever God's people turn away from His word and go on their own way. If disobedience isn't followed by divine discipline, then the person is not truly a child of God. Because what, are we, what does Hebrews 12, 6 tell us? For God disciplines those he loves. 
this chapter shows us what that looked like with the nation of Israel. And it reminds us that he still hates sin and will not tolerate disobedience. However, in this chapter, we're also reminded of God's mercy, patience, grace, and compassion. All of which have been extended to you. His mercy, his grace, his compassion, his love, his grace is also extended to you. And is available to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.7 tells us we have redemption in him through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. All God wants from you, all God wants is that we, is that you come to him in sincerity with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. This is what he wanted from the Israelites and what he wants from you and what he wants from me. Humbleness. Broken, contrite. If you're currently in a place where you believe the Lord is disciplining you, as they say, take your medicine and learn from it. Hebrews 12, 11 says, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And it also says in Proverbs 12, 1, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but, but one who hates correction is stupid. He does this so that he can tell you what he says in Isaiah 48.10. And this, again, this is what he wants to tell you. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the, in the furnace of affliction. You see, everything he does, everything God does is good. Just because God is... is is, is disciplining you or something is going on in your life doesn't mean that it's a bad thing or that God is doing something bad in your life. God can't, that's not his nature to do anything bad. Whatever he's doing in your life, it's for good. And it's for your, it's for your good and it's for your benefit so that you will grow more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's his goal sanctification he wants you to grow more into his image into the image of his son and that should be what we want to become less of me to be and be more of him now as, as I finish as I close here again those who are watching or listening if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and want to be forgiven of your sins. I'm going to close here and, and lead you in a prayer to do that. If you're ready to repent of your sins and be born again, let it be sincere. He, again, the Lord sees right through you. He knows your heart and He knows 
if you're sincere, if you're broken, if you're contrite, and if that's your condition, it's the best place, it's the best time to come to him. That's when he wants you the most. So let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the for your word here for showing us that your discipline isn't easy, Lord, but that it's for our own good. Lord, forgive us for our disobedience. Forgive us for just trying to fight our own battles on our own strength, for compromising, for tolerating the culture and Lord we want to be guided by you we want to please you and you alone Lord let us not seek to please man but just to please you and forgive us for those times that we have Lord, I know that in preparing this, I have learned a lot as well, Lord. Again, not to seek man's approval, but yours. Help me to get rid of my gods, my idols, whatever I'm holding more important than you. Whatever is more... Even those gods that, I'm, that I think that they're okay to be next to you. Help me to see what they are so that I may get rid of them, Lord. May I always come before you with, in humbleness and brokenness. Change me, Lord. And if you're listening and if you never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can come to him today at the foot of the cross and just pray this. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe that I have I've blown it, that I'm not in a right relationship with you, Lord. And I ask right now that you take my sins upon you, Lord. And forgive me for what I've done. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe he is Lord. I receive your forgiveness, Lord. And I come to you now as your child, as a born-again child, and ask you that you fill me with your spirit so that I may walk according to your ways every day day of my life. Thank you for being my Savior, my God. In Jesus' name. I pray for everyone here. I pray for their weak. I pray that you strengthen them, guide them, that you protect them from anybody that wants to harm them, Lord. Pray for their families as well. Keep them safe, their friends. Bring healing to anybody that's sick, Lord. Just watch over them as your children, Lord. Protect them. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.